Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. It's a lot of fun, and it's also a great honor to be working with Sir Elton John here. And uh, Elton happens to have uh, two shows that he wrote running on Broadway. And I got one, and it's called Moving Out. Two thousand three was a year in which Billy Joel got to look back in time and toward the future, sometimes simultaneously. And it's only in retrospect that we see all the crossroads he traveled over the course of these twelve months. At first glance, it's not an eventful year. Other than another tour with Elton John, there was no album coming out and no new projects on the horizon. But looking closely, a lot happened in two thousand three, both good and bad. It began on the heels of what the National Enquirer called one of the worst years of his life. He was fresh off a stint in rehab and supposedly in love with a woman from Boston. But the relationship wouldn't last, and the year started off with a bang. Or, more accurately, a crash. In January, Billy got into a car accident on Long Island. It was his second in about six months. Fortunately, things got better. Moving Out, the musical, was going strong on Broadway, having debuted in October of the previous year. Billy also inducted one of his favorite musical acts into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he performed outside in Times Square for the Tony Awards. But perhaps the most telling moments came during an appearance on the Today Show. We'll explore that interview, along with tour dates, special appearances, and more, as we dive deep into Billy Joel in 2003. We both thought it would be interesting to do an off-year But I'd say I was afraid that there wasn't going to be enough to draw from. But once again, as we started putting it together and piecing it together, we were finding more and more anecdotes and little things that happened along the way throughout the year. Personally, I wasn't listening to a lot of Billy Joel this year, and I really wasn't paying attention to what was going on. Yeah, I just remember when my daughter was born in December of 2002, and so I had like left college and I was working full time for the first time. Thinking about 2003 brings me back to being 21 and everything kind of changing in my life. It's not that I'm drawing parallels and maybe I'm stretching it, but I feel like it was a transitional year for him and it was a transitional year for me. (laughs) Not that I knew it at the time at all. Yeah. You know, he may not have either. I think when you're in the weeds, it's hard to really know where you're at. Yeah. You know, the one thing I I had in mind almost as a bias going into this was, you know, reading about years later how he sort of came to terms with the idea that he was sort of depressed for almost a decade following 9-11, which we touched on in the Liberty episode a little too, as I think we were all just trying to like get our bearings. Looking back at this year now really puts a lot of this stuff in a different light. He wasn't really terribly active in a way. He he was, but he wasn't, you know, he was doing a handful of dates a year. And if you remember when we were talking with Liberty, he said, you know, we were only doing eight to 10 weeks a year. And even he said, you know, that can drive you to drink. Yeah. When you're not out there doing what you do full time, it's, you know, a lot of idle time and 
I remember I was working for Sony at the time. So I was working for his record company and there really wasn't much happening in Billy Joel world aside from the face to face tour. You know, this was before a whole bunch of compilation reissues started surfacing at the end of the decade and things like that started going on. But I don't know if I was listening to him as much during those couple years, just maybe because here we were 10 years departed from the last record now. So we're starting to get pretty far from new material from him. Yeah, I think we had all just figured out that it wasn't happening for sure. Uh, I mean, we got Fantasies and Delusion in what, 2001, right? 2001, yeah, right around 9-11, which came out the same day as The Essential, Billy Joel. Yeah. Um, But that was kind of, even though he composed it, I don't quite put it in the same canon as the studio pop records. It's a weird afterthought. I should just go listen to it now because I was, I wanted to say I'm looking forward to getting into that one, but it's going to be a while. (laughs) But yeah, we, we all bought it. We all put it at number one and I think we we kind of all shelved it. Although I got a feeling it was really good. I think going back now and, and having my own musical vocabulary being a little wider, uh, I'll, I'll enjoy it a little more. There's elements of that in a lot of Billy's pop and rock stuff. So I think maybe if I listen to it with a different frame of mind now, you know, instead of just being bummed that it wasn't another pop record, I may hear some elements of, you know, what I liked about him in the first place. Put yourself on a diet of Chopin and Debussy first and and you'll get in the right frame of mind. (laughs) There you go. 2005, I happened to pick up this double LP of Debussy. Ah, I love it. I still listen to it today. Just such a random find that I enjoyed. And I think... You know, going back now and, and listening to Fantasies and Delusions is probably going to make a little more sense to me. You know, I know Billy always says that he, you know, he just didn't have the chops to perform it. I would love to hear him try, though. Yeah, just to see what happens. Because it when... may have a little more of that Billy character if it was coming out of his hands. But, you know, if there was a divergence from pop music in him, you know, this year, it was uh, it was actually Rhapsody in Blue. I don't know if he was doing this beforehand or necessarily afterwards, because I don't think it's on Shea, but I found at least two instances in which he began New York State of Mind by quoting Rhapsody in Blue. It it was a really nice touch. Um, I haven't seen it come out much again after that, I guess. Well, he did it during the face-to-face tours, and he also did it later in the year when he opened for the Tony Awards, or when he kicked off the Tony Awards, I guess you should say. But that may be getting out of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) But let's start by recapping what he was up to in 2002, and then we'll jump right into January of 2003. So 2002 saw Moving Out take the Broadway stage, Billy's first Broadway production, which was choreographed by Twyla Tharp. So that was taking up a lot of his time and energy as he helped get that off the ground along with Tommy Burns and David Rosenthal. He also went to rehab for for drinking. Uh, The rehab visit is supposed to be an occupational hazard with rock stars. I call it mental floss, explains Billy. That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, I know I have a melancholy streak, and yeah, I can feel alone sometimes, he says at one point. Uh, But if you're drinking by yourself, it's not always about drowning your sorrows. You bought a new house on Oyster Bay Harbor. And then he was dating a woman named Ann Maxwell, and that sort of, I guess, kicks off January as was on the 7th. We get a National Enquirer article talking about how he's in love and he's coming off one of the worst years of his life, but he's found this wonderful new woman. And then on January 23rd, the next National Enquirer article is how he hit a tree driving home on Long Island after, quote, a glass of champagne. (laughs) Yeah, this is it it became a couple of year stretch where he was just became more known for his car accidents than almost (laughs) anything else. Fortunately, no boating accidents that we're aware of. So that's yeah, right. (laughs) That we're aware of. (laughs) 
looking back on this year and, and looking at the Elton John tour and that National Enquirer article about and Maxwell, we know so much more now. It really casts these two things in a different light. I mean, obviously, the relationship with Ann Maxwell fizzled out. Uh, his relationship with Elton John took a dive in the years after yep. this. But, you know, at the time, you know, he had a new girlfriend and he was going out on tour again, albeit not for as long as, as, as he had in other times in his life. So this tour went from February through May. You know, he said later that one of the reasons why he didn't tour with Elton anymore is because Elton restricts his set lists. These shows are almost all exactly identical. I'm talking like he must have called an audible on I Go To Extremes, whether or not they were just going to play it that night or not, because these are pretty much the same. Now, I'm curious to hear about your experiences, because you saw him, what, twice on this tour? Three times Three times, believe it or not. Three times. Yeah. So I actually saw opening night which was February 21st in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. I was living in Atlanta at the time. So Birmingham was only, you know, a couple hour drive. I think I brought a, a coworker with me from Sony when I worked at Sony. It's funny because at record companies, at least back in the day, you know, they would do ticket buys where, you know, the record company would buy a block of tickets promo staff would use and the marketing people would use to you know yeah. give to accounts and usually if you're a big fan you'd get a pair of tickets as well and got to go to the show nice well by this point you know there was nothing new being sold by billy and so the label wasn't doing ticket buys for billy at that stage ah. and um <laughs> i was still friends with liberty obviously wasn't working with him as much anymore because i had moved to atlanta he moved back to new york so but he still took care of me for tickets on this run and um so I brought the coworker with me because uh, we didn't get any tickets at the label, which was kind of funny. This show, I don't have super strong memories of. I think I remember I was sitting side stage, lower level. Um, I remember it being a good show. The set list didn't jump out at me. And I didn't even realize it was the first night of the tour, to be honest with you. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I must not have been following it that close to realize that it was the tour kickoff. It's funny, I was trying to figure out who was playing bass for Billy at the time. It was Andy. Or if it was st- Andy's the current bass player. He's been with him at, since at least Shay. Yeah, because I watched one of the shows from this tour on YouTube and he introduces him. So it was Andy? Yeah. Because I know David Santos played in the late mm-hmm. 90s with Billy. So it was Andy, okay. But I think the lineup otherwise, um, Liberty was still in there on drums. Yeah. You had Crystal, Talia mm-hmm. Farrow, you had Mark Rivera, Tommy Burns. So it was, you know, aside from Liberty, it was a lot of the core lineup. That's with them now. So let's uh, let's take a quick look at the at the set list here, and I won't go through all of Elton's, but we'll just take the first night, and this is pretty indicative of the rest of the tour. Yeah. So they come out together. I don't know what song they played for Elton, but you hear Yankee Doodle Dandy for Billy, and then something quite British for Elton. <laughs> Might have been like God Save the Queen or something. I don't know if it was, but yeah, <laughs> something to that effect. Together they do uh, Your Song by Elton John, and then Just the Way You Are, and then Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. So the band comes in on, I believe, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which was yeah. nice because as much as I love the rhythm to Just the Way You Are, it really came out nicely um, just with the pianos and mm-hmm. the trading lyrics on these. You know, I'm having one memory of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. That's when, like you said, Elton's band came up on stage, and this was the first where the lights really started to become part of the show, you know, because the first two songs were just the two of them at a piano, not much going on. They're stationary. Yeah. So this is when you really start to see the light show come to life. And mm-hmm. I just remember as it pushes into that big chorus when the, when the, when the whole band's in, uh, the, the stage lighting got very yellow and it just kind of washed over the stage. Just 
you know, a very big moment. I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, my notes on this was the kick in is great because it, you know it goes for three songs. Well, it goes for two and a half songs before the band comes in and it really builds it up quite nicely. You know, it's funny now. I'm realizing I've seen I've seen two face to face shows. Uh, both of them were outdoors in Philly, so there was never any sort of lights going on at the beginning of them. So <laughs> you know, it was always out and playing during the day, so to speak. Yeah, there's a little bit of percussion on just the way you are, but certainly. You know, not, not that very noticeable beat. My other note is uh, I didn't like Billy's keyboard sound. It was way too like DX7 kind of bell sound for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wonder if this is the era he finally started switching to the electronic grand. I mean, he was playing a grand piano. Yeah. yeah. And you, you got the Fender Rhodes type patch. Because I think through the late 90s, he was still playing the acoustic piano because he had the auxiliary keyboards around stage yeah so i think this might have been the era that the digital grand first kind of came into play uh, yeah makes sense like i said you know you watch them and it's it's definitely that that kind of bell sound and i wouldn't be surprised yeah. if uh the technology jumped a whole lot so when they start though on your song billy does a really great job doing elton yeah i mean elton just sings like elton but billy in his rubber voiced way really blends exceptionally well except yeah. that he leaves on those long s's for which He's sort of known. Yeah. So they do those three, and then uh, then Elton does his thing, and then we come back out. So typical set list. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a show a set list from the middle of the tour here, which I think is is a little more indicative because as I was looking through it, there's a couple variations, uh, a couple he added in later, and a couple he dropped early on. So at the beginning of each show, it would be uh, Elton and Billy alone. Well, they would both come out and they would play together, but just the two of them, it would be your song and just the way you are. And then they would do Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, and Elton's band would come in about halfway through Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Elton does his set. Billy comes in, with the exception of like the first or second date on the tour. So he opens with Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, and then it's Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Moving Out, Angry Young Man, Allentown, An Innocent Man, River of Dreams... I go to extremes, which kind of went in and out a couple times. Uh, New York State of Mind, it's still rock and roll to me. Only the good die young. Then Elton comes back out, full band, and they do My Life, The Bitch Is Back, uh, You May Be Right, Benny and the Jets. Then they do two covers. They do A Hard Day's Night by The Beatles, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis, Piano Man together, just the two of them. Don't Ask Me Why is there for a few shows at the beginning and the end. I think that was the only other one that really changed up. Yeah, no, uh, no We Didn't Start the Fire. And you know what's absent this time around that they did in 94 and 95 was they each did one of the other songs. Oh, that's right. You know, Elton did Uptown Girl, I think, pretty often. And then Billy often did Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. For this tour from Billy was Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Angry Young Man, Allentown, Moving Out, An Innocent Man, River of Dreams, I Go to Extremes, which kind of went in and out, New York State mm -hmm. of Mind, and he did uh, Rhapsody in Blue, little quote of that at the beginning of it. It's still rock and roll to me. Only the good die young. And then Elton comes back out and they do uh, My Life, The Bitch Is Back, You May Be Right, Benny and the Jets. Then they do two covers. They do A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. And then they do Piano Man together to close out the show. First two dates on the tour, so the one Michael saw and the one after it, he actually does not start with uh, scenes. He starts with River Dreams when you saw him. And he starts with yep. Angry Young Man the next night. And we got Don't Ask Me Why in Birmingham. Yeah, you guys got Don't Ask Me Why. 
I don't think, yeah, that got played maybe uh, three more times on the tour. Yeah, he did it towards the end of the tour. He did it at the beginning. And it was pretty much locked in. He even, on the one I saw, he introduces Angry Young Man as this one's kind of obscure. Sort of speaking to the fact that this is the greatest hit show. He makes fun of Elton a little for being Sir Elton. He says, uh, we don't have, here in America, we don't have nights, we have evenings. Uh, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> but like a couple oh, times yeah. around, uh, he was like, Sir Elton. Oh, Sir Elton. You know, like in, in good fun and all. But Elton yeah. was knighted in 98. I found it funny that he was bringing it up five years later in, in such a way. Uh, it was funny. So the one I saw on YouTube, because this is, of course, what I saw on YouTube is way more interesting than you seeing him three times, but we'll just consider me the <laughs> opening act. <laughs> right, right, right. This is uh, the Carolina Center in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Felt a little jukeboxy at the beginning, especially with scenes. Uh, Mark Rivero is in fine form on this one. But uh, mm -hmm. he, he gets to Angry Young Man and says, oh, this one might be obscure. And then he goes, we used to play around here. And he starts like naming this old club and he jokes about the club for a minute. And uh, it was part, it was kind of cool because because um, that seemed to be the only real off the cuff moment in the whole thing. In, in a lot of yeah. ways, just this one, you know, maybe he even had it written in of like, okay, this is where I'll talk about something. The last thing, and I'll, I'll I'll give this off to you. He started talking about how he was the movie guy up on the screen, and I guess this is around the time where he started getting self conscious about how he looked. Just the fact that he was like really not looking like a rock star at all, you know, in his opinion. Uh, he was like, ah, my mom didn't raise me to be in no movies, you know, and he's he keeps like kind of looking up at the screen and joking about it. And yeah, I think th this is the era he started making fun of himself with how he looks and the hair or lack thereof. Yeah. As yeah. the decade went on. Yeah, I, I remember it was fun show. I, I was supposed to hook up with Liberty, but we we didn't end up meeting up at this show. I will say this was funny on this tour. Liberty started reminds me of like punk rock kind of deal. He started putting stickers on his kick drum head, just like random stuff. Oh like yeah. Different bands or like fake bullet holes. And just <laughs> by the end of the tour, it was pretty full. One of the bands that I was working with at Sony was called the Riddling Kids. Uh, they were a pop punk band <laughs> from Austin, Texas. Still stay in touch with most of those guys actually to this day. But uh, Liberty really dug these guys, really dug their energy and the record they put out. And so much so that when Riddling Kids came through Orlando, I brought Liberty to a show. Uh -huh. And Liberty brought Marielle, his youngest, and mm -hmm. they were excited to meet the band. And <laughs> Riddling Kids were just as excited to meet Liberty. And so, you know, that was a fun moment. I actually have a picture of the two of them with the band in the dressing room in Orlando. But oh, at cool. some point, I gave Liberty a couple Riddling Kids stickers, and one of them ended up on the kick drum. Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at one of the shows on that tour, I, no I noticed it and took a photo with my point and shoot and mm -hmm. you know, sent it to the guys in the band, and they couldn't believe it. They're like, holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> You know, it's the more I talk to you, the more I see you're at the nexus of so many things. It's it's fun watching this unfold. <laughs> the, the more we talk, it's funny. And some of these things I I've, I had forgotten about. They dug Billy Joel and loved Liberty as a drummer. Yeah, and it was just funny that something about that band he gravitated towards as well. And uh -huh. yeah, they just hit it off. So that was a memory of that of that tour was that kick drum head and all the all the stickers he put on there. You know, you've got five thousand dollar drum kit with stickers all <laughs> over it, like it's a punk band with a two hundred dollar kit. Yeah, next you're gonna see him on the guitar cases and stuff. So mid tour here, Billy actually inducts the Righteous Brothers into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was on March 10th. 
I haven't watched too many uh, induction speeches, but I'm going to say that this one seemed a lot looser than other ones. Yeah. It was really, really cool. First, he comes out, he really lays on the New York accent, kind of making fun of himself about crashing his car so many times. Uh, he sings a lot of little pieces of various songs, which is always fun. Sounded to me a little like uh, George Carlin for a minute when he was just listing out other artists for a moment. Just did the cadence yeah. of it and his tone really sounded like George Carlin around that time. Oh, funny. As I put in the intro, you know, it was, it was a year where you could really see him looking forward and looking back. And this is one of the moments where he really got to look way, way back. Because he remembered getting You've Lost That Loving Feeling on 45. And he goes, baby, baby, I get down on my knees for you. And he's like, me and my friends are like, is he mm-hmm. singing about what I think he's singing about? Like, this is our topic of conversation at this age. You know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> but he says, you know, he talks about them being blue-eyed soul. And I like this line. He goes, you know, in listening to this, he says, sometimes white people could be soulful. It was a life-changing idea. And, uh, you know, he mentions how Until the Night was mm-hmm. an homage to the Everly Brothers. You know, you don't hear him talk about the Righteous Brothers all that much. So it's fun to hear him really dig in on this speech and really give this little slice of his life. And you realize that this duo who, you know, kind of got swept away in history. Not that anybody thinks bad about them, but just, you know, right. nobody of this generation really knows them. And you find out that, you know, they were a big part of Billy's formative years. And listening to some of those songs, I mean, you can, you can hear it. I always love seeing when an artist you're a fan of, you see him being the fanboy, yeah, being yeah. like excited <laughs> about an artist and it makes him so relatable. So after right. that, the tour picks back up. And how topical is this? They had a <laughs> show booked for Toronto in April, but the show was canceled because of SARS. Who would have thought that an outbreak would cause... I shouldn't even joke about it. <laughs> I know, I know. Because uh, this is serious stuff, but I mean, yeah. that was super unheard of back then. I mean, mm-hmm. now we've had an entire year, maybe two, completely wiped out. But things were pretty dicey in Toronto. The article that I was reading says that the show sold out in 20 minutes and they ended up canceling the date because things were getting pretty bad in, in Toronto. This article that you linked over here, check out this paragraph. Reading this uh, today, SARS has killed 16 people in the Toronto area, the only part of the world outside Asia where people have died from the highly contagious disease for which there is no known cure. SARS, which has a mortality rate of about 6%, has killed over 265 people and affected about 4,625 nations. Just to say that, just compare it to today's stats, do whatever you want with it, but... Yeah, that's yeah. a really interesting put that stat. on the table and yeah, make it that what you will. Yeah. So they ended up skipping Toronto altogether. That show never got rescheduled. So just a couple, you know, week or two later, I saw my second and third show of the tour. <laughs> so we're looking at May 2nd and 3rd of 2003 here at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Auburn Hills, Michigan, which is about half hour, 40 minutes north of Detroit. Sadly enough, this venue, the Palace was just demolished about a week or two ago. It was only 32 years old. I think it opened in 1988. Just went through a multi-million dollar renovation like five years ago. Oh, wow. They built a new hockey and basketball arena in downtown Detroit. And now the Detroit Red Wings and the Detroit Pistons share that arena and kind of made the palace obsolete. It's going to be redeveloped into like corporate stuff or warehouses or industry stuff and um so it closed down a couple years ago bob seeger did the last couple shows there it officially was demolished yeah just a couple weeks ago and i tell you so many memories of this venue um this was where i saw my first show 
which was Billy Joel in 1990. And gosh, seen so many shows there. I mean, several Billy shows, several Metallica shows. Gosh, who have I seen? Nine Inch Nails. I saw so many shows, Hmm. but it's now gone. But these two shows in particular, I remember Liberty was so gracious. He gave me a pair of tickets for each night. I was living in Atlanta at the time, but I came to Michigan for these shows and to spend some time with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was the one who got me into Billy Joel, so I thought it was appropriate to take her to one show. Oh, nice. I can't remember if it was night one or two, but it was cool for me because I got to introduce her to Liberty. Oh, cool. Um, so we got pre-show passes and got to go backstage and meet Liberty, uh, hung out in catering and all uh-huh. that stuff. Liberty was so great, super sweet to my mom mm. and, you know, chatting with her. And, you know, Billy was the first music I ever got into. And that was thanks to her. And, you know, she took me to all my first Billy shows and all that. Cool. So it was fun to get to take her to a show and introduce her and all that stuff. So that was really mm-hmm. cool. I remember at the time my mom was an art teacher. And, you know, like I said, we had backstage passes for the show. And mm-hmm. after we you know visited for a bit, you know, he had to go get ready. And so we went back out to our seats and... As we're walking back out from the backstage area, my mom spots a couple of her teacher friends. <laughs> she told me later, she's like, yeah, that was so cool. Walking out from backstage and <laughs> my friends see me. <laughs> yeah, that's a bragging rights. The other night, I uh, brought my friend Donnie Brown, who is a drummer. Mm-hmm. And between 1992 and 2013, he was the drummer for the band The Verve Pipe. Um, incredible band from Michigan that I, I became friends with and I worked with. So I knew Donnie was a big Billy fan and a big Liberty fan. And I'm like, oh, you know, I got to bring Donnie to the show. So I invited him. And so we drove out to the show. So I'm like, okay, now I'm going to introduce Donnie to Liberty. And, you know, Donnie had toured, you know, for years in the Verve Pipe. And, you know, as a headliner, they opened for Kiss, did a tour with Kiss. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's... He's got some road miles under him for sure. Yeah. But it was cool to get to, you know, Liberty gave us like the tour, like the stage tour and showed us the gear and all that stuff, which was really oh, fun. Wow. Didn't have a good camera back then, but there's a, I've got a really grainy picture of the three of us standing behind Liberty's drums on stage. Oh, we'll have to post it. I think I still have it. When we were talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing earlier, you see Billy turn into like fanboy over the Righteous Brothers. Well, here's Donnie. His band sold a couple million records. You know, yeah. they were successful in their day. And to see him turn into a fan. And I remember he's like, hey, if I bring my copy of The Stranger, you think he'll sign it? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Bring it. And, you know, so to see him turn into a fan for this was was really fun. And we're hanging out. He signed his record. And, you know, we we're hanging out and chatting for a bit. And Donnie brought a, the newest Verve Pipe record for him. And <laughs> and it was very much like, hey, check out my band, you know, but I'm like, but like, <laughs> this is going to be our big it says break. RCA records on it. And it's like, you know, this was like a nationally released record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the end of this story, though, is what's hilarious is I um, Donnie. I remember he was like, do you think we'll um, we'll meet Billy? I mm-hmm. said, I- I've never met him. So unlikely, but you never know if we'd ever bump into him back there. So. I want to say this show too, Russell Javers was at. Now that I think about it. Anyway. Russell lived in Michigan at the time. Okay. And I met him through Liberty. Yeah, because Liberty, I think, went to go do something. And then I saw Russell mulling around. And so we chatted with him for a minute. You know, we were kind of starting to wind things down. And Donnie's will go, I'm going to go find a bathroom. I'll just meet you back at the seats. I'm like, all right, cool. So he goes to do his thing. And then no sooner does Donnie leave, but Billy appears. 
<laughs> yeah, like no joke. I think it's like Billy and Russell and a couple other random people standing around and I'm standing there too. I didn't, there was no unawkward moment to introduce myself or, you know, so I never did that, but I was kind of in the circle of people chatting and maybe said a couple words here and there. So that was my interaction, which was bizarre. And it was, it was so, so weird. But the whole time I'm like, oh shit, where did Donnie go? <laughs> and this is before the show. Before the show. Right. Yeah. Oh God, I would be petrified to say a damn thing. That would be like a Seinfeld moment, you know, like, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I said, I may have like chuckled with something he said and, oh, you know what? I remember Billy was making a joke about the car accident. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, I swear to God, it was something along the lines of, he's like, well, if there's anything good that came out of the me hitting that tree, he's like, maybe Sting will stop asking me to do these rainforest benefits. <laughs> that I swear that sticks out. I swear he it was, there was some joke about something like that. Well, because he, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame speech, he says, he calls out Sting at the beginning when he talks about wrapping, uh, wrapping his car around the tree. He says something to Sting. All right, you hear that, Sting? No trees is safe around me. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's, okay, so that makes sense. Because yeah. this was like a couple weeks later. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that now. Oh my, see this, like as we go through this, it's like all this stuff I had totally forgotten about. And so, yeah, so it was crazy just, you know, it was just hanging on the loose and, you know, I don't know who else was there. I remember Russell and Billy. Yeah. And Donnie was nowhere to be seen. Oh, poor so Donnie. he totally misses it. To tell him totally about it like right it. away. Yeah. <laughs> and so Billy it gets whisked off to get ready. And, yeah. you know, I say bye to Russell and I'm, I'm like, all right, well, I'll head out to the seats and meet up with Donnie. <laughs> Donnie's sitting down and I go to my seat. You know, this is before like we all have smartphones and I can be like, get back here. Just you know like what I mean? Him, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. Once he was out of eyesight, he was gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I get back to my seat and I must have had this stupid grin on my face because I was just like three feet away from Billy. And Donnie looks at me. He's like, what? I'm like, dude, you don't want to know. <laughs> he's like, what? Why? What happened? I said, as soon as you left, Billy came out. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no, man, I swear to God. I said, I, I barely said two words, but yep, he was right there, right where you were. And he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. But it's funny. That was more memorable than the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a question for you about this. So you saw him the second and the second and third, you said? Yeah, both nights. Yeah. Then after that, there were just two more mm -hmm. shows for the tour. This is definitely the tail end now. So in this one, I, I see... Um, Stop in the name of love, CC Rider, yep. and like a virgin. Now, did he do those? Do you remember if he did them like as a medley? It looks like. Yeah, this was basically just like, you know, fifteen seconds of each. Oh, okay. You know, he does this now where he's got a habit of doing like finding a song that has ties to that town, and he'll either cover it in full or just play a couple minutes of it or a couple yeah. seconds of it or whatever. If I'm not mistaken, that was the case with this. Stop in the name of love. I think he did a bit more of Crystal Sang. Anytime they did Motown in in Michigan, it was usually one of the girl groups, and Crystal usually sang, and it was incredible. I don't remember the CC Rider part. Um, like a virgin, Madonna's from Detroit, a couple snippets of each, like Setless FM, you know, it makes it look like it's three straight full covers, but right. I, I'm pretty positive that certainly wasn't the case. Yeah. Okay. Like, like a virgin might've been like seven seconds. You oh know? yeah. Like the, yeah, like an offhand thing. He just does it. Yeah. I used to think that this was more like two full shows from each, but really, I mean, the set lists are fairly short. I remember they went by in a blink each of their sets. 
Billy would typically do these days, do like a 25 song set. Yeah. His set on his own was like 11 songs, 10 songs. Yeah. yeah I remember when I saw them in 09, I felt like uh, Elton's went by really quick and Billy played for longer. That was in Philly. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I remember learning on this tour, you know, when I went back to see Liberty, he said, we do the hangs before the show. He said, cause by the time the show ends, we're gone. Hmm. I'm like, I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, piano man ends with just the two of them. At least on this tour, they did piano man solo. Right. So he's like, while they're doing piano man, we, we go off stage. We grab our bag. The rest of our stuff is already packed. We hop in the cars and go to the, we're on our way to the hotel by the time they're done. <laughs> And he's like, with Piano Man, they literally walk off stage and into limos before the house lights come on. So they don't even go back to the dressing room after the show. None of that. He's like, they walk up, literally walk off stage and into the car. I suppose they don't get uh, freshened up before they go, but eh, makes sense. Beat the traffic. Yeah. Well, and on this tour, Elton, his very last wardrobe change, because, you know, Billy wore the same suit, uh-huh. black suit, all show every night. Yeah. Elton had a little curtained off area with a couple little drapes that was just side stage where he would duck into and change wardrobe like four times throughout the night. His last wardrobe change was into pajamas. <laughs> so he's wearing like a baggy comfy t-shirt and yeah. like cotton, you know, flannel pajama pants and he's comfortable by the yeah. end of the show. <laughs> and so he's ready to go. <laughs> yeah. So the tour ends. Do you recall if they did much touring, if any touring in 2004 because this might be one of the last runs that Liberty did with Billy. Let's see. Because by 2005, Chuck Berge was in the band. Yeah, man. I'm showing two shows on here. One is the Moving Out Tour. The other one was September 9th. Of what year? 04. Looks like two shows. October 24th. But technically, okay, so at Richard Rogers Theater in New York, which I guess is Moving Out. That's, yeah, that's the Richard Rogers Theater. Yeah, that yeah. was where Moving Out was. I think he just played with them. The other one is uh, in April. That was Rock for the Rainforest, which must have been Sting's doing. Yeah, and it's just covers. So, yeah. Rock for the no Billy Joel set. Oh, yeah, look at you that. You know what I mean? Pretty much took that year off. Yeah, th- wow, this might have been it with Liberty. May 8th, 2003, Rosemont, Illinois. That was the last night of the tour. I'm not seeing any full-on Billy Joel shows until 2006. And by 2006, Chuck Berge was in the band. So this may have been the last show with Liberty. Wow. Look at that, man. You know, this this episode is all about what, how different this year looks now. Like, you saw Liberty. You Unbeknownst to you, you saw a couple of his last shows with Billy. And until this moment, I didn't realize that th- that was so close to the end. That's wild, man. I had never looked at the full tour schedule of this tour until now. Had no yeah. idea that I saw the first show of this tour. And of the last four shows, I saw the first two. So yeah. there was only two shows after mine on this tour. And by everything we can find, this was Liberty's last tour with Billy. Unbelievable. Because he was really inactive as far as performing in 2004 and 2005. Yeah, by 09, it was Chuck for sure when I saw him next. Yep. And 2006, I saw uh, a show or two and Chuck was on drums by then. Who, you know, Chuck came from moving out. Yeah. Which had just wrapped up. Mm -hmm. And then he moved over to Billy once the whole Liberty Billy fallout happened. Which is now in the past. Yeah, I was about to say, which I guess we don't talk about anymore. (laughs) It's a moment in history, but I still get so excited to know that they're friends again. It's just so cool. I'm excited to see what unfolds. I found this Today Show segment, and it was the last thing I watched when I was getting ready for this. It's from May 20th, so now the tour is wrapped up, right? We're about halfway through the year. For what's supposed to be a fluff piece, 
he says a lot of things that really resonate mm-hmm. now, kind of knowing what we know, right? So the mm-hmm. whole piece is, oh, life out in the Hamptons, and today's guest is Billy Joel, and then they show this segment of Billy Joel taking Kelly Rappaport out on one of his boats. There's a surprisingly varied soundtrack of Billy's work underneath uh, the segment. It's about six minutes long. It starts with Stormfront, which I thought was odd until I realized that they started with I've Been Sailing a Long Time on This Ocean, and it's talking about books, so that makes sense. Then they yeah. go into Only Human, Don't Ask Me Why. And then he gives Kelly the wheel. He goes, you want to drive? And she's like, yeah, I'll try it. And then they kick into pressure, which is either genius or total schmaltz. I have not decided yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is all just background music. You know, mostly they 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 work around the lyrics, so it's just the musical parts. And then you may be yeah. right, New York State of Mind. They show a little clip of Down East or Alexa with some lyrics, which again makes sense. They use yeah. River of Dreams, and then they end with The Entertainer. Um, Surprising choices. They For are, sure. yeah. Uh, like, Only Human was, like, weird. I'm like, it, it's 2003. It's not even, like, early 90s. Right. Where the, where the production still makes sense. A couple things that I think hold more weight now, knowing what we know. Kelly says, The water means everything to you. And he just says, yes. Just something about that, you know, just gives you insight into his frame of mind. He says, you know, you go about a half mile out, you're on another planet. You're just another guy in a boat. And then they talk about the boat he uh, designed and he sold a few of them. And Kelly's like, you could retire from the music, Billy, and just pursue that, right? And you feel like she said it as like just an offhand thing. And he goes, I'm that's kind of heading that way. Yeah, really. And then they ask, well, you really? know, do you want anything else? And he goes, I'd like to have a long term successful relationship with a woman. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that was the other funny thing on the uh the concert I watched on YouTube, when he introduces Liberty, he goes, this guy's been with me for, you know, however many years. He's been with me longer than both my wives. He's been with me longer than ex-wife number one. He's been with me longer than ex-wife number two. <laughs> two more shows, you know? Yeah. You know, because we really don't know when the falling out happened yeah. as well. I mean, I know, you know, in Higher Gun, I know Liberty talks about how the dynamic and things were changing on the road and all that. But you had two and a half years until the next tour. Who knows when the true fallout could have happened? You know, and it didn't really come out for years either that there was, you know, a lot of acrimony there. A few other things I liked from this, Kelly is joking about, well, you know, you could retire and sell boats. And she says, uh, they talk about, and I didn't catch it because I'm not a boat guy, but there was something specific about the boat that he sort of, he'd either come up with the idea for and somebody else flesh it out, but there was some sort of technological advancement to this boat that made it more than just like a vanity thing. You know, I was like, oh, it's Billy Joel's mm-hmm. boat. So she asks, you know, would you think it, it being Billy Joel's boat helps it sell? He goes, I, I don't think so. He goes, if Keith Richards designed the boat, I don't know if I'd want to buy it. That's yeah. right. He did start selling boats for a short period. I yeah. forgot. And this is the point where I really realized, going back to the Shades of Grey episode we did in that documentary, we talked about how Danny Korchmar mentioned, ticked off all the things that Billy does. He's his own, He's a writer. He's a performer. He manages. He does this. Yeah. He does that. You know, let's just point out that obviously Billy does music as a career. He's a history buff, like a serious, serious history buff. And he's yeah. also into boating and motorcycles to the point where he's like helped design them and open shops and stuff. This is a, mo- a kind of crystallizing moment when you realize how many things he actually does. You know, it's because music is becoming less of a part of his life at this mm-hmm. point. So there's not too much to talk about when he's doing these interviews <laughs> as far as the musical stuff. So, so now what you're seeing are the other passions that are taking up more real estate yeah. for him. Shows of the upper deck, I guess it's right about where we're watching. She says, um, 
I can imagine a piano right here. And he goes, no, 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 no. He's like, I, I come out here to get away from the piano, to get away from music. I've never seen this one before. I didn't really know it was out there. I think it really summed up the year and where he was at that point more than kind of anything else. Just puts him right in the crossroads there. Of where he's really feeling like he wants to even stop performing, at least for a while. So I want to jump ahead real quick to the last thing I found for this year, just because I didn't find much on it, and it would just be a bummer to, to end on it. And it's just that uh, on October 4th, Billy played Andre Agassi's Grand Slam for Children in Madison Square Garden, joined by, well, I, I'm guessing everybody played on their own, but it, I should say performed on their own. Uh, Billy Joel, David Foster, Dennis Miller, Elton John, Robin Williams, Sarah McLaughlin, Cheryl Crow, and Tears for Fears. Couldn't find a set list. There's no footage from it. But that was the last thing. So I figured, uh, remember that episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns gives a tour of his house and he ends in the basement and it's just like an unfinished basement with a ping pong table. He's like, I really should stop ending the tours with this. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured, let me just jump to this and then go backwards. Great comparison. <laughs> yeah, this is funny. The Grand Slam for Children online charity ticket auctions at StubHub.com will raise significant amounts of money and awareness while giving music and sports fans uncommon access to a very special event i just think it's funny that you know billy joel really hates uh scalpers scalpers and he's, he's partnered <laughs> with StubHub here but the benefit uh aims to change the lives of underprivileged abused and at-risk children in the las vegas community by supporting local educational and recreational programs so that was the last thing that happened the second half of the year one thing that's all we found so he was really like Putting the brakes on Billy Joel, the performer, after yeah. this Elton John tour in May. Yeah, he really did. Because, yeah, there's like, what, two shows? And, and one of them wasn't even, a, neither of them were really, you know, full-on shows in no. 2004. The Today Show thing was in May. June 8th was the Tony Awards performance that we yeah. talked about, where he played New York State of Mind in Times Square. Mm-hmm. And they were highlighting um, moving, moving out. out. And 2005 was nothing as well. Uh, and then 2006 wow. began a solo run. With um, Chuck Berge added to the band on drums. Check that. You know, this is just jumping ahead, though. Oh, three. He's jukeboxing it. You know, he's just playing the hits with uh, Elton. Check out this set list from January 7th. I would have. I wish I was here for this. This is outrageous. First song, Piano Man. Then, okay, so it goes Piano Man, Everybody Loves You Now, Miami 2017, Laura, Allentown, New York State of Mind, Stiletto, Zanzibar, Great Wall of China, All for Lena. Sometimes a fantasy, sleeping with the television on, she's right on time, moving out, the night is still young, big man on Mulberry Street, wait till you hear this one, where's the orchestra? And then keeping the faith, I go to extremes, we didn't start the fire, big shot, you may be right, get two encores, oh river of dreams, only the good die young, scenes from an Italian restaurant, and famous last words. Oh my God. We got to ask Mike Stutz if there's a boot of this. Wow, way to bring on a new drummer and just roll them through the uh, the back catalog. Holy hell. You're not kidding, man. Ooh. 2006 is going to be a fun episode to do. He did like 70 shows. So it was a pretty big year for him. Yeah. I did not realize at the time that Billy was going into a very sizable sabbatical mm-hmm. from performing. The only time I can think of him ever taking any kind of break was when he was going to do another record. And even then, it wasn't that long. Right. Because his records used to not be that far apart. So the last performance that we've got any footage of Mm -hmm. would have been his Tony Awards performance, where he played outside in Times Square um, ahead of the Tonys doing New York State of Mind. Before we get into that, well, the, that actual performance, there's a, there's a pretty cool video on YouTube of him doing the sound check. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He's just sitting there. He's he's all decked out, and he's going through uh, under the boardwalk and the uh, and the Carol King version of Up on the Roof, that like kind of slower piano led version of it, you know. And you, I, I was watching it like thinking that maybe that was part of his performance, you know, just that it was yeah. chuffed from the audience, but like he would kind of stop for a second and, and speak to someone through the mic that, you know, clearly they were getting set up kind of thing. And uh, yeah. if you find it, there's, um, I believe that it's either got a run through or it's got the, I think it was, I think that part is also just a, he does a run through of New York State of Mind there. Moving out to comb two Tony Awards that year. Mm-hmm. So we've got Best Choreography, Twilight Tharp for mm-hmm. Moving Out. And then we have Best Orchestrations, Billy Joel and Stuart Molina for Moving Out. And that was uh, Michael Cavanaugh who shows up on uh, the Retold page a lot. Especially lately, yeah. he's been doing a lot of really nice performances. Yeah. And a good shot of him. Yeah, him. Michael Cavanaugh was the front man, so mm-hmm. to speak. He was the Billy Joel yeah. character playing and singing piano and all that. Chuck Berge on drums. I think for the Broadway run, for a good part of it, Tommy Burns and David Rosenthal were also involved. And then Dennis, I think, was in Moving Out as well, the guitar player who's in Lords of 52nd Street, you know, who did the Shea shows Mm -hmm. and the 2006 shows with Billy. Um, I believe he came from Moving Out as well. Yeah, I know they they, they grabbed a lot from them. So, yeah, this is a really pretty appropriate way to really wrap up the year and, and what seems to be an era for Billy. This is the point where he really looks back and looks forward at the same time because it's all his classic songs that somebody else is reimagining in this new context. Now, at the time, you got to remember, these were new, these rock productions on Broadway. It was this. Who else? I guess Elton had one because he makes that joke in a concert. He goes, I got one show on Broadway. Elton has two. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, he was doing, uh, Elton had done The Lion King and Evita. What was the other big one? Wasn't that the, this was the, the, the one they did with ABBA too, right? Mamma Mia? Mamma Mia. That was the ABBA one. Um, Springsteen had wasn't one. Wasn't there one based on the Who? Like, Tom, Tommy. Yeah, but then uh, Tommy was, they were doing that for a while, I think. Although I did see that in 2001. And that was yeah. a minimalist set as well, which disappointed was me. Was it? Yeah, I wanted a big, lavish friend of mine in the high school saw it, so there were cannons on the stage. I got no cannons. That sucked. But, no cannons. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, this was like the latest thing was, um, you know, all these classic 70s rockers were being recast on, on Broadway 30 years later. Looking back at it now, man, things could have gone any number of ways. But, you know, in this moment, Billy opens up. Uh, he's outside in Times Square. He, he plays that quote from Rhapsody in Blue, goes into New York State of Mind. And then kind of right in the middle of it, sort of expertly, he introduces the show and then finishes up New York State of Mind. Which is also funny when you think about when we talked about Tony Bennett having to, like, really rejigger his uh, talking part. Or not, not, not his talking part, but that he had to, like, ad-lib for a moment in New York State of Mind to get back on the queue. Yeah, 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 during Shea, yeah. And also reaching back to when we were talking about the B-sides and rarities, we tracked Billy doing, I think, what was it, In the Mood for A League of Their Own? In a sentimental mood. In a sentimental mood for A League of Their Own, up through all my life, and we kind of tracked how he started off, he really didn't have his standards voice down, by the time he did all my life, he did. And in this version of New York State of Mind, you hear that standards 
approach starting to come out a little. You know, not that he does it in concert yeah. now, but when he's doing a standard or he's doing like All My Life or something, he really does it up. You know, he really, not even does it up because that makes it sound like he's putting it's it on. It's a different phrasing. Yeah. And a different, yeah. Exactly. So we see that coming through and I like this version. I like New York State of Mind a lot better when he screws with it. I like the CW Post version where they funky it up. I like this uh, solo version. He stretches it out a little nicer, you know. Still one of my favorite versions of it is the uh, soundcheck version in Russia. So then they cut to a medley of them doing River of Dreams, mm-hmm. Keeping the Faith, and Only the Good Die Young. And that was on stage at Radio City Music Hall. So River of Dreams is played pretty straight. And then it yep. gets real straight ahead like a kind of punky rethinking of Keeping the Faith. That stays the whole time. And then Only the Good Die Young kind of gets back to the shuffle but keeps a little bit of the chunkiness of uh keeping the faith it's a little more big bandy yeah that's a good way to put it. yeah definitely more big bandy definitely great job good for billy good for everyone good yeah for, good for chuck and it good was for you know it was just another way for him to see what else his songs could do it was kind of twilight tharp's baby yeah and he signed off on it and you know david rosenthal and tommy burns were heavily involved in the mm-hmm. music side of it to make sure it did it enough justice yeah you know, and it kept the Billy Joel name active when he wasn't, because Moving Out ran for those years that he wasn't on the road. I almost wonder if it did work well because it was Twyla Tharp's, her idea, so to speak. You know, because right. it was it was coming, somebody from Broadway came up with it. It wasn't Billy as an interloper going in and being right. like, I want to put my stuff on Broadway. I bet you that's a big part of why it worked, was you know, somebody else had the idea and, and, and ran with it and used the songs. You know, not that yeah. Billy couldn't, but you couldn't see him wanting to necessarily do that, I guess. I remember when I saw it, like me being a student of the recordings and the tours from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, yeah. like I just put myself in, if I were like, if I were hired as the drummer, you know, I would I would have probably such a hard time because <laughs> I would so want to play it like Liberty. Oh, yeah. And it just is not like that at all and moving out. I mean, Chuck's a great drummer, nothing against him, but it's a whole different flavor than Liberty DeVito. Yeah. And But I would want to play it. I would want to do those fills like mm-hmm. this or have the groove feel this way. Yeah. And it just wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't fly. Yeah, I want to I wanna be Liberty at Farm Ape, knocking right? the drums halfway off the riser. Yeah, um, right. And yeah, just looking back, what an end to that little era of his life. Kind of post River of Dreams, pre Madison yeah. Square Garden residency, before Shea, before Twelve Gardens Live. Uh, Last when we tour were with Liberty, I mean, there was a lot of change going on. Yeah, a lot of transition. Yeah, right there. You know, as as we as a country, we're trying to get our bearings again. And um, yep, you know, looking back now, like I said, this could have gone so many ways after after two thousand three. And I don't think we would. It's amazing that I was at three of these shows and I didn't even. I was so oblivious to a lot of that. Mm-hmm. It's funny because even the shows themselves, my memories were not even on the stage. So yeah, that's 2003. Now I'm really curious to hear from anyone who remembers these shows and if they have any memories, good, bad, or even lukewarm. I don't know. It yeah. seems to be where this, this sits. Yeah. Reach out to us, please. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you can do that. Uh, email at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we're still on all the socials, Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, Instagram, the three main channels there. So you can reach out to us there or find all of our info at glasshousespod.com. Mm-hmm. 
uh, please reach out to us. We love hearing from you guys. And it's always so cool to hear your stories and your connection to the uh, episode topics and what we've chatting about. And, you know, as we go through each of these episodes, it jogs so many memories for both of us. So we love hearing the memories that it jogs for you guys as well. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time on Glass House's Billy Joel podcast. Mm -hmm.